Good evening, everybody. Apologies for the slight technical difficulties, but we are now live. So thank you, everybody, and welcome. And it's 11 p.m. Well, it's a little after now. Uh, Eastern Time, Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. And thanks for joining us for the 117th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. The Rock and Roll Shrink. All right. All right. I want to get you some applause and say thank you for coming. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com while the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc.
Alrighty, guys. So sorry for the technical stuff going on. I'm going to try to keep it together as best as we can. And it looks like I've had a little bit of too much life in the fast lane also. But as always, thank you for the music, Dr. Mathis. And if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. Well, I think anybody who has never heard that song has probably been living under a rock. Um, <clears throat> that, of course, is from the Beatles uh, album yesterday and today, Day Tripper. Uh, and I thought it was appropriate since we're going to be talking about uh, sort of uh, celebrating and vilifying the rock and roll lifestyle, you know, and uh, kind of what we do and uh, what a lot of folks have done. And as I'm going to call it, romancing the stoned. <laughs> oh, oh, dad jokes from a not bad. Shame on you. <laughs> so there you okay. have it. Yes, thank you. And we're getting the puns <laughs> out early. So as Dr. Mathis mentions very painfully, tonight's episode is entitled Life in the Fast Lane, Romanticizing the Rock and Roll Party Lifestyle. And there's a slight nod to the Eagles, which we will discuss in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. So I wanted to give a, uh, a shout-out <clears throat> to – I seem to be on a bass player role these days, but we've had a lot of uh, passings with drummers and bassists recently. Uh, so I wanted to give a shout-out to somebody that most people probably don't know but is clearly, in my humble opinion, uh, a real unsung hero uh, and really just amazingly stellar bass player, Tim Bogert. Uh, officially uh, born John Voorhees Bogert from uh, Ridgefield, New Jersey. Forget about it. (laughs) 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 Uh, And he was, yeah, well, come on, I got to get my dillies in, right? So he was a uh, bassist and vocalist and really sort of in the same genre style-wise as somebody like um, Chris Squire or Jack Bruce. Uh, very, very fast, very finger styly, and kind of a cross between that and some of the uh, the real heavy hitter Motown folks like James Jamerson, uh, some of the folks that he was also very much into, and actually played a Fender Precision bass most of uh, his career. And really, you uh, also used a bunch of low power amps in the studio which gave him this really crisp edge sound to the precision bass he often used. Uh, his friend and collaborator and cohort almost the entire time was a very well-known drummer, uh, Carmen Apice, who has been in a bunch of different bands. Uh, most people pronounce his name a piece, but his name in Italian is Apice. His, his brother, uh, Vinny, was the drummer for uh, Black Sabbath for a while and for the band Heaven and Hell, which came out of Black Sabbath. Uh, along with Ronnie James Dio's longtime drummer. So it's kind of runs in the family, although my personal preference is uh, to say that Carmine's a better percussionist, not to take anything away from Vinny. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Tim and Carmine uh, were kind of the co-formers of the band Vanilla Fudge back in the day, uh, along with Mark Stein and uh, Vince Martell. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And uh, most of the stuff that the Vinyl Fudge did was a lot of what I would call psychedelic remakes of, you know, of songs that other people wrote. And they were very uh, well known for doing these psychedelic remakes of R&B songs like, uh, and Motown songs like You Keep, you Keep Me Hanging On by the Supremes. Uh, and uh, they, they kind of did this really spacey versions of these kind of things. And eventually, they they were active, I think, through um, 69 uh, and maybe early 70s, uh, early 70s, excuse me. Uh, and since that time, they have reformed in various configurations, but kind of the core of the band has always been Carmine and uh, and and Tim Bogart. Uh, Tim and Carmine then decided to get into a three-piece powerhouse trio with a, a well-known guitarist at the time, um, <clears throat> Jeff Beck. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, I might've heard of that guy. Right. Um, and this was kind of along the same time that they formed first a band called Cactus. So Cactus was sort of the forerunner of Beck Boger Napasee because Be- uh, Cactus uh, was was hailed as the American Led Zeppelin. It had uh, Jim McCarty as the guitarist and Rusty Day as the vocalist harmonica player. And they were also on and off for many years up until recent years um, and different configurations because Rusty Day passed on and they got two folks to replace him, a harmonica player and a lead vocalist. Um, but kind of in that same time uh, era, uh, Jeff Beck's the Jeff Beck group had disbanded around 72 and he joined forces with uh, Tim Bogart and Carmen Apsey Beck to form Beck Bogart and Apsey and they toured around and played they only did one studio recording and then one live recording uh, according to all the members of the band as they interviewed them years later they were basically too drugged out to <laughs> to do very much uh, but in, in between reincarnations of Vanilla Fudge and Cactus, uh, Tim Bogart played with a shoot ton of people, uh, including a band called Bobby and the Midnighters, uh, which is kind of a side project. That was, the, the Bobby is Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead. So, you know, he's also been in a lot of different band configurations, as has uh, Jerry Garcia, his kind of co-conspirator in crime in the uh, Grateful Dead. But he's also played on Bo Diddley's 20th anniversary Rock and Roll All-Star album. Uh, he's played with Michael Shanker on some of the solo stuff. I mean, he's been all over the place. He's played and toured with Rick Derringer. Uh, so, I mean, he's, he has definitely been around. He's done a shoot ton of studio work. Uh, and in the early 80s, I think it was 81, uh, he became a faculty member of the Musicians Institute in Hollywood uh, as a guitar instru- a bass instructor. And eventually he met uh, and worked with a Japanese guitar there, a guitarist there called uh, Pata, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name. And they did some work together, and, you know, he was recognized on the Hollywood Rock of Fame um, he's also uh, teamed up with Carmine Apice and uh, a fellow named Shar, which I've never heard of, to form a band, CBA. Uh, you know, so he's worked with a shoot ton of people. Um, 
his event during the uh, 2009, 2010. He was working with a blues out, uh, rock trio called the Blues Mobile Band and recorded some records with them, did some tours with them. So, I mean, he's been around a lot. Uh, he also joined uh, Mike Inesco, who is a well-known guitarist, vocalist, and uh, Emery Chow on drums. Uh, both of those guys are from a band called the Blindside Blues Band and recorded the big electric cream jam, which was basically a 10-track tribute to cream live that they did at the uh, Beachland Ballroom uh, in Euclid, Ohio, which is right outside of Cleveland. Uh, so he's just done a boatload of stuff. And they were in the process of recording another uh, Vanilla Fudge record when Bogart passed away uh, in January of this year. Um, he had t retired from touring, I think, in 2010 or 2011, I can't remember, uh, because he had a motorcycle accident, which made it very, very difficult for him to, to do a lot of touring. So he, that was when he kind of re retired from the stage, but still did studio stuff. And then uh, developed uh, a form of brain cancer, and that's what he passed from in uh, January of this year. And the other members, the, actually the original other three members of Vanilla Fudge came together, and they did some recording uh, for, the last, for what would be their last album. And they'd made arrangements with other folks in different studios to host Tim Bogart so he wouldn't have to travel very far to do the recording. And uh, it's, it's really kind of a sad story, but they did get... Uh, some songs out on for that record that Tim Bogart is on, uh, which is due to be released, uh, I think, in October. So that's uh, kind of my shout-out to a really well-deserved but not that well-known bassist and vocalist, Tim Bogart. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that. Always good stories. All right. So, um, again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. So feel free to give us a call if you want to talk about anything. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All right. Uh, I keep losing track of some of my buttons because my setup's all weird now. Oh, Okay. Life in the Fast Lane, Romanticizing a Rock and Roll Party Lifestyle. So tonight's show is a response to an opinion piece called Romanticizing the Drug Musician Mythos from October 2008 on a website called PremierGuitar.com. It was written by John Bolinge, a Nashville-based multi-instrumentalist best known for leading the band on NBC's Nashville Star, serving as music director for the CMT Awards, and specials on PBS and GAC, and of course his appearances in PG Ring Rundown, Rig Rundown, pardon me, review demo, axes and artifacts, and what Bollinger plays videos. And with all due respect to Ian Dury in the 70s and the Blockheads who did the hit song Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, we are actually here to support this article's assertions and discuss why it's not such a cool thing to over-romanticize the constant partying, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse, rock and roll stereotype lifestyle of musicians. This topic is closely related to our very first show ever, Musicians and Suicide, way back in July 2016. Tonight we will discuss, first um, I'm going to read you guys most of the original article, Romanticizing the Drug Musician Mythos. 
Next, I want to talk about the history of musicians and the hard partying stereotype. And last, I want to talk about why this is a toxic trope and should be abandoned. And I want to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything you want to add before we get started. Yeah, for those of you who don't know uh, John Bollinger, he's a really good musician and does a lot of demos, online demos. Uh, And the uh, website that was taken from uh, was from a uh, magazine called Premier Guitar. It's a really, really good, uh, really good magazine for guitar aficionados and otherwise gear nerds such as myself. So I just thought I'd do a shout out for that before we got going. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I had not heard of him before the article. So this is very helpful. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Okay. So uh, first thing we're going to do, I'm going to start by reading to our listeners most of the original article to start off the discussion. Because there's really no point in copy-pasting stuff when I could just turn around and read it to you. So um, so this is Romanticizing the Drug Musician Mythos by John Bollinger, October 14, 2008, from PremierGuitar.com. And this is what he has to say. Drugs and rock and roll don't have to go hand in hand. I spent the summer after I graduated high school giggling five nights, oh, gigging, excuse me, five nights a week with a cover band in my hometown of Billings, Montana. It was an informative three months. I learned about tone, pocket, and vice. On one of my rare nights off, I stumbled literally into a tiny bar where Chuck Pyle was absolutely tearing up his battered Martin for an audience of one bored waitress and one surly bartender. The performer was as talented as the room was dead, completely. Chuck was not only a brilliant guitar player, but he had mastered the art of between-song banter. His spoken prologues were written better than most songs one hears at a writer's night in Nashville. Sorry. Um, This was one hazy night nearly 20 years ago, so I can't remember the song title. But I do remember his introduction, though not verbatim. It went something like this. Quote, Sometimes it seems to me like one of the jobs of being a musician is to take drugs and tell the rest of the world about it, end quote. He then proceeded to paint a sonic picture of an acid-fueled adventure in which he and some fellow musicians morphed into cats. Think T.S. Eliot meets Fritz. That's a very disturbing combination. (laughs) I doubt (laughs) Chuck did this song most nights. He probably read his audience, me, the party of one, and thought, I have the perfect material for this degenerate. (laughs) It was so clever and visual that my one listening remained with me all this time. The new posthumous release of Kurt Cobain's spoken word CD reminded me of Chuck Pyle's hypothesis. Many musicians clearly romanticized drug use, even addiction, and unbelievably drug-related fatalities. Some report that drugs open doors in their playing. Tom Hamilton of Aerosmith, sober for some time now, said somewhat sheepishly in an interview that he probably wouldn't have come up with that great bass line from Sweet Emotion had he not been high. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for clean living. (laughs) The majority of stoner musicians are plain old garden variety dimwits as seen on MTV throughout the 80s, you know, back when they played music. (laughs) With red-eyed smiles that say, I want to rock and roll a night and party every day, ironically a song written by the chemical-free Paul and Jean of Kiss. The worst are these annoying musicians 
who play the tortured genius card, arguing the overwhelming burden of lugging around brilliance and enormous talent necessitates a means of escape from feeling too deeply. For example, Pete Doherty, the wanker. <laughs> okay. Uh, regrettably, the musician mythos has taken a sharp turn into some creepy dark waters. There have always been drugs in music, but now they seem so openly evil. Go to YouTube and check, check out Cab Calloway's brilliant performance of Reefer Man. The band, along with the audience, are all in on a little joke about a bass player harmlessly and hilariously dabbling in weed. Now compare that with any random photo of Amy Winehouse. We've come a long way, baby. Admittedly, I've not been an ideal role model. I've played many, many gigs with a not-so-healthy buzz. Parenthetically, I ain't talking about a 60-cycle hum from a single coil pickups. I'm sure there are videos or audio recordings of some of my less-than-stellar beer-driven performances out there on some website, which don't set a great example for kids. Other mistakes include incriminating things I've said in interviews and colorful songs I've written. On the fifth year of Bushdom, Bushdom, his idea of a political joke, I wrote and recorded a song called Weed in the White House, which I intended to be more of a funny political job than a normal app, and that being the pro-marijuana legislation organization, not the adjective. Um, A snip of the lyrics goes, we need some weed in the White House. Gives us all something to smile about. Throw a kilo and the furnace and pump the smoke into the Oval Office. We'll finally have some world peace when we all inhale with the chief. Oh, say, can you see our country needs some weed? It's trite, cute, I suppose. <laughs> no matter my intent, he says, you'll be hard-pressed to use my work as a battle cry for sobriety. Yes, that's very true. I regret my formerly cavalier attitude about the whole mess. I hope and pray I never led any young aspiring musician astray. The world, music world of my youth, though replete with bloated rockers, DOA from their assorted overdoses, seems vaguely quaint when compared to what the modern paparazzi serves us each week. Yes, this sounds hypocritical and short-sighted, but I maintain that there's a gigantic difference between the drug use of musicians in the past and modern druggy musicians. In the past, it seemed about love, fun, and breaking convention in hopes of establishing a new beautiful world. Today, the druggers seem hopelessly set on destruction. No beauty, no future, just get numb and watch the cesspool burn. The romanticized nihilist rocker image holds a seductive power. Regrettably, just as aspiring musicians study and ape what their heroes play, they also emulate their actions. I wish more musicians would attempt to tear down this false appraisal of the cool, drugged-out musician and give people a more accurate depiction of the true torture these people put themselves and others through. Singer Lane Staley of Alice in Chains bravely did just that in his final interview three months before he died from an overdose of heroin and cocaine, revealing a broken 34-year-old, incontinent, adult-minded, and incapable of leaving his apartment. And he said in the interview, quote, I know I'm dying, he rasped through missing teeth. And they're swearing in here, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, just in case anybody needs to go to the kitchen while I'm swearing. Um, uh, Quote again, this fucking drug use is like insulin a diabetic needs to survive. I'm not using drugs to get high like many people think. 
I know I made a big mistake when I started using this shit. It's a very difficult thing to explain. My liver's not functioning, and I'm throwing up all the time and shedding my pants. The pain is more than you can handle. It's the worst pain in the world. Dope sick hurts the entire body. I did crack and heroin for years. I never wanted to end my life this way. I know I have no chance. It's too late. I never wanted the public's thumbs up about this fucking drug use, end quote. And then to end the article, he, he said there's a short list of a few other potential spokespeople who would have been more than qualified to expand on the pros and cons of mixing one's music career with chemicals. And it's an enormous list. Um, oh, he, he mentioned where the uh, interview was that Lane Staley commented on. It was from Lane Staley, Angry Chair, A Look Inside the Heart and Soul of an Incredible Musician by Argentinian Writer and Music for Adriano Rubio. Okay, and that's the end of the article. And I want to add in here, I grabbed a few of the names, but there are easily over 100. So this is just a snip of some that you're probably familiar with. Um, Andy Gibb, who died at 30, singer, younger brother of the Bee Gees, cardiac damage strongly exacerbated by cocaine and alcohol abuse. Brian Cole, who died at 30, musician from the association, uh, heroin overdose. Brian Connolly, 51, musician from Sweet, liver damage caused by long-term substance abuse and chronic alcoholism. Brian Epstein at 32, manager of the Beatles, drug overdose. Cowboy, real name Keith Wiggins, 29, musician for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, drug overdose. Gene Clark, 46, musician for the Birds, bleeding ulcer due to long-term alcohol abuse. Gigi Allen at 36, this was no surprise to anybody because he loved to roll around in his own feces and glass on stage. Uh, <laughs> I'm familiar with his work, but I was always a little scared of him. Um, punk musician, heroin overdose, although I'd be willing to bet it's a whole bunch of things. Um, Howie Epstein at 47, uh, not related to Brian of the Beatles. Uh, musician, ex-bassist with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, heroin overdose. John Bonham died at 32, musician for Led Zeppelin. Alcohol-related asphyxiation caused by choking on his own vomit. Sorry about that. Surprise gross. <laughs> John Entwistle died at 57, musician, basis for The Who. Died from heart failure brought upon by cocaine use. Uh, Judy Garland, 47, singer and actress, disputed drug overdose as cause of death. I think it was well known that late in her career she really got her head screwed up by being a child star. and She was doing all kinds of things, but her manager's handled it and we're actually going to talk about that kind of thing later on about how movie studios and um, record studios manage people but then they start growing this reputation we'll get into that in a little bit um, Kurt Cobain most of you know of uh, died at 27 musician for Nirvana heroin overdose and a shotgun wound in the head probably the latter was exacerbated by the former there's also theories for murder, but, you know, whatever. There, that happens a lot. Lowell George, uh, 34, musician for Little Feet. Heart attack from habitual drug use, uh, the probable cause. And lastly, and I definitely threw this one in 
because this was a musician of my parents' generation, um, a generation that likes to sit around and go, you know, musician didn't used to have all that trash in it that it has now. Tommy Dorsey died at 51, jazz musician and band leader, choked to death while sleeping with the aid of drugs. The list could go on even longer, and in the original article it did. In our first show, without even trying very hard, we had come up with over 100 names just of musicians who committed suicide. And one of the big things that came out of that show is we realized almost all of them were substance abusers as well. Very few of them committed suicide without being under the influence. But has the music industry always been like this? Yes, and we're going to talk about that. Many people like to whitewash the proverbial old days and say that music and musicians didn't used to be so wild. And that is a nostalgic and toxic assumption, which is a big honking lie, guys. In our next segment, we're going to briefly discuss the history of rock and roll culture and then review some notable examples of sex, drugs, and wild behavior from entertainers at least back into the 1800s, if not earlier. In fact, sex and drugs and wild behavior existed amongst musicians before rock and roll as a genre ever did. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if you'd like to add anything. Yeah, side note, uh, Brian Cole, a bassist of the association, actually died at 29, about one month short of 30. His son is now the, has taken his place in the Reformed Association. They came back and reformed back in the 90s, and I think they still play occasionally. And uh, he's, so Brian Cole's place got uh, replaced by his son, which I thought was really cool. Um, <clears throat> let's see what the other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, yeah, Little George, of course, being the slide guitar player for Little Feet, really great slide player. And John Bonham, of course, being the drummer for uh, Zeppelin. And, uh, it, yeah, it's just yeah. the whole thing is, is really a shame. But, yeah, this stuff's been around since, you know, the madrigal days of the Renaissance and musicians back in Roman times. So this is uh, this stuff predates uh, the music business and rock and roll, because even in modern times, uh, blues and jazz and country people were doing heroin and serious drugs way before rock and rollers got involved in it. So uh, this is definitely not a uh, product of the rock and roll generation. Yes, and actually that's a great segue because that is now the very thing that we're going to talk about next. Uh, the ah, history of musicians it. and the hard partying stereotype and the history of rock and roll in general. Now, there's a lot to it and there's a bunch of stuff that we're not going to really get into tonight because I just want to peripherally set up some history for you. But I'm, I'm going to explain this and then I'm going to show you that basically what we just said these things were around when rock and roll became a genre. So this is not new. This has been around forever and ever. And, you know, people are kidding themselves how they want to paint the industry and how, and this goes into romanticizing it. You know, they romanticize yeah. it because they have notions about it that are simply not true. And we're going to explain that now. Yep. So um, understand that there's no one completely verified history of the term rock and roll. It was many decades, almost a couple of centuries in the making from evolution in multiple communities and cultures that came together to, to do this. 
So I just grabbed some quick factoids about the term because I wanted you guys to see it come together, but also to realize some of the places it came from, which you guys should know your history enough to know these were not sex and drugs and rock and roll free venues. None of this was. All right, so the first known uh, place that this term shows up, the alliterative phrase rocking and rolling originally was used by mariners at least as early as the 17th century to describe the combined rocking fore and aft and rolling side to side motion of a ship on the ocean. And I'm sure you guys know that a lot of seafaring gentlemen uh, did a lot of things to pass the time and alleviate loneliness and the lack of women on the ship and all that other fun stuff. Uh, next, the hymn Rocked in the Cradle of the Deep with words were written in the 1830s. By the late 1890s, by that time, the specific phrase rocking and rolling was also used by African-Americans and spirituals with a religious connotation. Um, I don't know why Wikipedia said that. Of course, spirituals have a religious connotation. That was a weird thing to say, <laughs> but I copied it. Um, the earliest known recordings of the phrase were in several versions of the song The Camp Meeting Jubilee by both the Edison Male Quartet and the Columbia Quartet and these were recorded between 1896 and 1900. By the early 20th century, the words increasingly were used together in secular black slang with a double meaning, ostensibly referring to dancing and partying, but often with a subtextual meaning of sex. In 1922, blues singer Trixie Smith recorded My Man Rocks Me With One Steady Roll, first featuring the, first, the two words in a secular context. And a side note that's not in my notes, there's somebody who was having an argument on Will Wheaton's wall on Facebook, a kid that was in Star Trek. Um, somebody was bitching about Will's playlist on Spotify and saying how songs had all this filth in it that didn't used to be there. And the thing that I wanted to mention during that argument, someone who was a fan of the page posted not only a link, but the complete lyrics to a song. I've forgotten the title. I couldn't dig it up in time, but it was from around the 20s or 30s, and it was a black woman blues singer, and the song was basically about having nipples the size of her thumbs and all the things her man does to her. And, and it's right out there. The whole thing was in there. I was actually worried she was going to get Facebook banned. It was so explicit. So let us so be super clear. Well, go ahead. Sounds like somebody would be singing Thanks for the Memories. Oh, yes. Oh, I got two dad jokes tonight. <laughs> now you owe me. Well, but and you he, know, there's also a famous blues song called Rock Me, Baby. And he's not talking about rock and roll in that song. You know, rock me like my back ain't got no bone. Oh, rock me okay. all night long. Yeah, it's gotcha. a, a, yeah. B.B. King's done it. Every major African-American blues artist, Clapton's done it. I mean, you know. Uh, and that's also the religious context, also the term holy rollers, ah, because they're, they've okay. been possessed by the spirit of, of Jesus, and they're rolling in the seats, rocking and rolling in the seats. Yep. And even people like Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was a really started out as a, a gospel, uh, Pentecostal gospel uh, guitarist, uh, blues blues gospel sing gospely blues singer turned completely secular and was doing all this stuff way the hell before 
even people like Jerry Lee Lewis, which she was a, an, an inspiration for people like Little Richard and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, this has this been oh, around good. a minute. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're actually about three paragraphs down. We're going to talk about that very thing again. Okay. Um, but well, I, just, okay. I want to be didn't mean to really steal your clear with you. No, it's fine. It's fine. I just want to be super clear with you guys. This is not new, and I drug all of these out to show my work here. Um, over the 1920s and 30s, there were more and more lyrics referencing the term, and by the 1940s, it was in common use in jazz and blues reviews. However, in 1951, Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed began broadcasting rhythm, blues, and country music for a multiracial audience. As one source points out, there was some controversy in his selection of recordings. Freed would deliberately play the original singles by the black artists instead of waiting for a white singer to cover them. Freed, familiar with the music of earlier decades, used the phrase rock and roll to describe the music he aired over station WJW, which was 8.50 a.m. Its use is also credited to Freed's sponsor, record store owner Leo Mintz, who encouraged Freed to play the music on the radio. Several sources suggest that Freed discovered the term a parenthetically, a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Well, I guess, you know, sometimes it was. Uh, on the record, 60-Minute Man by Billy Ward and his Dominoes. And last but not least, as we were talking about a hot minute ago, the Pentecostal church has also been identified as a crucial component in the development of rock and roll. The modern Pentecostal movement parallels rock and roll in many ways. Further, the unhinged wild energy of the church, and I mean, these are... You know, like the people in the Margaret Mead documentary about, you know, snake handlers and strychnine drinkers and that kind of that kind of Pentecostal. Um, this is evidenced in the most important of early rock performers that were also raised in Pentecostal churches, including, as you mentioned, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Elvis Presley, Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. And that is why all of them kind of had that church reputation, but also that bad boy or girl reputation at the same time. That was the Pentecostals doing. Um, probably not intentionally, but that, that's what happened. <laughs> so the purpose of sharing all this is to show you guys that from the beginning of the genre, there was clandestine behavior in the music community and controversies of many kinds. Not only that, but popular music prior to all this was frequently the purview of either the church, politics, or the military. And the notion of music not written for or controlled by one of these three was quite outlandish at first. So those involved in it were seen from the beginning as countercultural and wild. If you stop and think about it, how many popular songs were there really before the industrial era that were not like, you know, Battle Hymn of the Republic or you know, Dixie or something for church or, you know, something political going on. You really, you're hard pressed to think of them until we got industrialized and eventually, you know, radio and records started happening and things got popular, you know, uh, mass printing of books also, which also meant mass printing of sheet music. So anybody who colored outside the lines was considered extremely naughty from the very beginning. This, it's, things started that way. Don't let anybody fool you, and don't fool yourselves. Um, rock music somewhat paralleled popular entertainment at the beginnings of the industrial era and the advent of movie studios. Just like record labels, 
Studios wanted to micromanage everything about an actor or dancer's image and reputation, but soon they began to have to either fire people, face fan wrath, or keep people on and micromanage everything, artists who were off the proverbial chain. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from an academic paper that came across my bow. And the paper is entitled... Uh, the Music Industry is a Mental Health Problem. It was a 2019 collegiate paper done by Manny Manriquez at University of Pacific. And he was working on a music management degree of some kind. And he started out saying in his paper, I just took a couple snips that I thought would be good. Uh, according to a study done by the University of Westminster and Music Tank of musicians, 68.5% of two 2,211 musicians interviewed said they experienced depression, and 71% said they had experienced severe anxiety or panic attacks. These results show that musicians are three times more susceptible to depression than the average person. Um, Parenthetically, our research, Music Minds Matter. Musicians are unfortunately alienated from society. They spend countless hours honing their craft and performing while their friends are out having a good time. They have little to no time to socialize, make strong bonds with people, or maintain bonds due to their irregular and unstable work hours. Since musicians are so alienated from society, they often feel like they don't belong. Touring conditions are rough. Touring musicians are always on the move and may literally feel like they don't have a place where they belong. They also have terrible sleep schedules and poor meals doing to being on the road and performing really late night um, on most nights. This makes them more likely to abuse caffeine, sleeping drugs, and migraine medications. And also since they are always traveling, they have to leave their friends, family, and uh, usual support groups behind. This definitely puts them at a mental disadvantage. When artists are depressed, they are very likely to turn to drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. Drugs and alcohol have always been around in the music business, and the use has been popularized by many artists. It's gotten to the point where drugs and alcohol are viewed by many as part of the job and culture of being a musician. Next paragraph. Article, uh, not articles, artists, pardon, are now romanticizing depression and drugs because it is profitable. This was one of the most horrifying things I discovered doing research for this tonight's show. Um, while some artists like Mac Miller really did struggle with depression and drug addiction. Some may be portraying that they do it for the money. Uh, after Little Pete, Lil Pete, who's a rap musician, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Mathis has no idea who this is, um, died of an overdose. His brother, Carl R., mentioned how his death was an accident and he was only acting depressed because it was profitable. Parenthetically, genius. Lil Peep's brother, this was an article that this was from, Genius Little Peep's brother reveals how Little Peep was paid to be sad. Um, I didn't actually read the article, but that was it was mentioned. This is an article on Genius quoting Little Peep's brother saying, quote, he didn't really take five Xanax pills a day, but he would take them and then post on Instagram about it. He explains how it would pay more for his brother to seem depressed and using drugs as a quick way to deal with it than to seem happy. I, I found that absolutely disturbing 
Um, in summary, the whole sex and drugs and rock and roll thing has been part of rock music since before it was truly codified as a genre. We just went through phases of pretending it wasn't, then making it profitable artists, for artists to be publicly messed up for us to watch like a Roman circus. And with that, I'm going to turn to you, Dr. Mathis, and see if you'd like to add anything, and I'm sure you're going to. Uh, I actually know who Little Peep was. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Well, it's, I, it's I a long story. Yeah, it's a long story. Okay. Uh, yeah, which I can't show. talk. Yeah, which I can't talk about. Um, but uh, I can tell you that I have worked with some fairly famous people that folks on the show would know, and one of whom only became a heroin addict after getting a recording deal because it was encouraged for him to do drugs to, quote-unquote, suffer for his profession and to increase his artistic creativity, which I was... Oh, my God, that's gross. Yeah, I would not disagree with that. And he had a real... He eventually got over it. He had a real hell of a heck of a time kicking the heroin. That is just... Gross. It's gross. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. I would not disagree with that. It's part of the reason that, you know, and we've talked about this on the show before, but I mean, there's many reasons why I've never done drugs. Uh, One of which is because I'm a scaredy cat and a nerd. The other one is which it runs in my family and, you know, I'm tempting fate. And another one is because I'm a cheap bastard and I want to spend money on cool gear and you can't spend money on cool gear if you're pissing it away on drugs. And, Ah. And the other reason is having watched a lot of my uh, cohorts, both friends and musicians who were druggies, die or get killed yeah. from people who were drunk or stoned driving cars and doing stupid things. And, uh, you know, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. And for me, and I was very depressed as a kid, and, you know, I think I've probably talked about it on the show before. Uh, I was right. chronically ill and, you know, I had a lot of depression and self-esteem issues. But I just knew that if I did that crap, I might feel better in the moment, but it was one of those, you know, short-term gains for long-term pains things. And I was just like, you know what, I'll just grip my teeth and be miserable because I know eventually this shit's going to go away. And, uh, and it did. And, you know, and here I am, you know, many years later and I'm still drug clean. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it is very tempting. And I've, what's funny about it is when I'm with a lot of my peer group back in the day, uh, it was not cool to be drug clean. Uh, it was very not cool to be straight edge. And now, 30 years, 20, 30 years later, you know, my cohorts who didn't die or become, you know, impaired or whatever, you know, go, you know, compliment me and, wow, you were really smart. And I'm like, yeah, I was, but I was also really scared. <laughs> uh, I just didn't want to go there, you know. And I play songs about drugs, and there's a lot of songs. I mean, J.J. Kale, who is the author of Cocaine, uh, you know, a lot of people have written great songs that are about drugs. And Needle and the Damage Done. I mean, there's a shoot ton of them. Life in the Fast Lane. I mean, there's a shoot ton of them. Oh, yeah. You know. That's why I made this episode that tonight. (laughs) Yeah, and I like them. I like those songs. But... I like them because they're catchy and cool, but I don't necessarily subscribe to the lyrics, you know, the the mood yeah. of the lyrics. Yeah. And I think yep, what people have sense. to realize is that whatever the 
intention of the author of those songs and the performer of those songs. Uh, I think ultimately one has to connect with one's true self. And if one does that, uh, one has no need of drugs because drugs just really keep you from being the true you and connecting with you or your higher power or any flipping body else for that matter. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the last part, um, which is basically why this is a toxic trope, although we've already been partly explaining that to you guys already to lead into it, and why it should be abandoned. So by now, there have been many behind-the-music-style news articles and stories, not only about the quintessential party people, but absolutely heartbreaking tales of not being of being only not unable to get proper help to stop, but fans, managers, and record labels who make it career-killing to quit or refuse to support the musician in stopping. The sad reality is that entertainment is such a capricious and fickle business, and so many talented musicians never get a chance to be in the spotlight. So rocking the publicity boat by trying to be someone different can sometimes kill a career or even the musician themselves. Also, just in general, we as a culture and a society are way too much in love with our partied-out, crash-and-burn celebrities. This image feeds something in us. And actually, I don't have this marked in my notes, but if I can pause here for a second, Dr. Mathis, and put you a bit on the spot, it, it just like a couple of sentences, what, do you, what is it in us that loves a train wreck? What, what is going on that we can't let this go? Um, I think there's a myriad of reasons for that, uh, not the least of which, which is misery loves company. And so if you're miserable, you want to watch somebody that's like you and or worse off than you so you can kind of go, hey, it's not that bad. Or, hey, here's another person who thinks like me and feels like me, and it's a form of self-affirmation. I mean, otherwise... Why the hell would, and I mean no disrespect to these shows I'm going to mention, but why the hell would you watch My Fat Fabulous Life or Honey Boo Boo? I mean, or Jersey Shore, or any of these what I would classify as, as Thelma Marcy, my former uh, uh, neighbor in Knoxville, used to say these low-cut shows <laughs> and over-dramatized crazy shit, excuse my French, and, you know, why would you watch that? Right? It's because your life sucks and you either want to get escapism by watching somebody you think is better off than you. You want to see somebody worse off than you and so you don't feel so bad or you want to see somebody you can identify with so you don't feel so bad. Okay, that makes sense. Um, all right, let's go ahead and continue. So... Let's talk for a minute about romanticizing drug abuse and other self-destructive behaviors in general, celebrity aside, um, because we do it to celebrities, but we also do it to each other. Um, and just as a side note, here's a great example about how we almost worship burning out young, uh, young musicians. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard of the 27 Club. And the 27 Club is the magic club where a whole bunch of big-name musicians died at 27, usually by drug overdose or the results of it, like uh, one of them choked on his own vomit. I'm pretty sure it was Hendrix. Um, all at age 27. So we got Joplin, J. 
Jim Morrison of The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, and there are more. We could just go down the list. But we always get excited when one of them is 27, even though it's a really gross thing to be celebrating. Because there's some magic in the fact that so many of them are 27, like it means something. We're giant meaning-making machines. And so we're so in love with this, and we love when something fits. And we don't go, you know, we shouldn't have anybody dying at 27 for something, and we should stop worshiping it. But this is a toxic thing that we do. Now, there are people who are doing some positive things, so I wanted to bring this up. There's some positive pushback on this phenomenon, just not nearly enough, uh, mostly. Um, So instead of romanticizing depression and drugs, some artists have taken a more ethical and positive approach to the topic of depression in their music. Rapper Logic, meaning that there's a person that goes by the stage name Logic, and they are a rapper, um, put the suicide prevention hotline on the title of one of his songs, 1-800-273-8255, featuring Alessia, Kara, and Khalid. This song tells a message of someone who is depressed, feeling suicidal, but looked for professional help and got it. The song was wildly successful with 135 million views on YouTube and many, many positive comments. The song was also performed in the 2018 Grammys and tripled the Two Backstage Pass Volume 2. Um, there's a link, but we don't need all of that. Uh, tripled the backstage pass amount of calls being made to the hotline. According to the CNN article, Benson Lindsay, Logic's Grammy performance tripled calls, and it was about the hotline. This is a more realistic and productive way to tackle the issue of depression. There's another story that's similar to it. Joyner Lucas took a brutally realistic approach to how bad depression really is on his I'm Sorry, 508-507-2209 song, making it very clear that depression is a serious matter with a statement at the end of the video telling viewers to call the hotline if they or anyone they know are suffering from thoughts of suicide or depression. Joyner was met with positive feedback all over Twitter. Moving forward, we need to provide musicians with more professional mental health services. Organizations like We Rise LA, Silence the Shame, Music Cares, The Wish Art Group, and others have been working on this. More information about them is listed on this site that all those notes came from. Seven Mindful Organizations for Musicians and Their Mental Health. We also need to stop romanticizing depression and drugs as artists, even if it's profitable. I'm, you know, I'm very upset to hear that the labels are pushing this for the image. Uh, it's the stupidest thing ever. Um, finally, we must continue to educate youth on the dangers of using drugs and the devastating impact of depression, encouraging them to get help wherever they need it. And my notes, not just the same overused, out of touch and tone-deaf platitudes that many well-meaning people and groups use. We need to reconnect with our entertainment icons and with our communities and each other and be prepared to really listen to what is bothering others and inconvenience ourselves to be present and available to help. And that means not cutting people off, not shaming them if they want to talk about something that upsets you, 
because you know, otherwise they're just going to not tell you what's going on with them if you're not going to listen. All right, so Dr. Mathis, what would be some more suggestions of responses for people of things to do to help combat the romanticizing of this problem? Um, one of the things I would suggest is musicians getting more involved in writing more songs like the former people you just mentioned, uh, musicians talking to youth uh, and other musicians who are coming up in the field, uh, parents talking about their kids uh, that listen to this kind of music. And I'm not suggesting they ban the music. I'm suggesting they talk about the themes and what's cool about the themes and what's not cool about the themes. Uh, to educate folks about how to get help. There's plenty of help for substance abuse, which is almost always tied to things like homicide and suicide. Uh, and get help for the stuff. There are plenty of places you can go. There are plenty of support groups. Uh, if you have a family member that you're worried about, try to talk to them in very non-judgmental ways and try to get help. And really just be out there and be a symbol. If you're a musician and who doesn't do drugs like myself, you know, volunteer time or go, you know, do talks to the, to the, to high schoolers or college people or whatever, uh, you know, get out there and make it known for lack of a better term that living an irresponsible lifestyle is not something that one should be attempting to do because even though, I mean, we do it in literature. I mean, look at Romeo and Juliet for God's sake. You know, uh, so this is not some new phenomena. You know, we need to talk about it and to get it out and talk about ways to dealing with it because all drugs are basically an escape of avoidance from feeling like crap in one way, shape, or another, whether it's schizophrenia, ADHD, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, low self-worth, PTSD, whatever. So we need to really get help if we're one of those folks and circumvent it and if you're just a musician you know who's whatever and you're playing don't don't bow even if you're a famous musician don't bow to corporate pressure to make money for you know, you know writing irresponsible songs because i mean what I'll, I'll tell people is you know you can't sell your soul and and be okay with it i mean no amount of money can buy peace of mind uh, or happiness it can buy a lot of things but <laughs> good health and happiness are not two things they can buy. So, if, you know, if you're one of those folks, get responsible. And if you have a problem, go check into it. There's plenty of places to go get help. Uh, and, you know, do your homework. And don't emulate idiots, whether the idiots are drug addicts or substance abusers or cutters or overeaters or gamblers or irresponsible sex addicts or whatever your thing might be. You know, balance is the key to life, period, end of story. Nature is in balance. We are part of nature. You need to stay more in balance with nature. And as a side note, uh, Brian Jones was actually murdered by the guy who was hired to protect him, but they were both stoned out of their mind and drowned in the pool because he was stoned and fighting in a stoned manner with the guy over drugs. <laughs> and the guy pushed him away and pushed him under the water thinking he was playing with him and accidentally killed him. And one on this guy's deathbed, uh, he wrote a confession out that they found uh, on the guy that actually killed him. Oh, my God. Yeah, that happened only about like five years or ten years ago. Holy crap. But, okay. Yeah, but they, but they were both prolific drug users and partiers, and Brian Jones was a prolific druggie. So they certainly contributed to the accident in the pool. It wasn't intentional. Um, 
but it was certainly yeah. a drug-related incident. That's absolutely true. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's just one more reason to not, you know, romanticize these things, not make them sound cool. Yep. So, all right. So getting close to the top of the hour. So in summary, we hope now that our listeners better understand the attraction in our pop culture to the party, hardy musician stereotype and why we need to stop holding it in such high esteem. So this concludes our show, Life in the Fast Lane, Romanticizing the Rock and Roll Party Lifestyle. And on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. And we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new new topic for discussion on Wednesday, September 29th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. We'd also like to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up over the next couple of weeks. Travelage Radio, Thursday, that's tomorrow, the 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. A railroad town surrounded by snow-capped peaks, Durango is in Colorado's Animas River Valley, 6,512 feet above sea level. Best known for the Durango and Silverton narrow-gauge railroad, Durango was founded by the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad Company in 1880. The steam-powered train marked 120 years of service in 2002, but is still going strong, often as a setting for movies, but also as a freight line for precious metals. It has carried more than 300 million in such cargo over the years. Hear more and all about nearby Mesa Verde National Park, Purgatory Resort, and the 1887 Stratter Hotel when Rachel Welsh talks with Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee about the town's legacy, current status, and future plans. Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, and this is hosted on Streamlabs. Sunday, the 19th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Join me for the Walking Dead online viewing party, season 11, episode 5, Out of the Ashes. Please join us online or on the air by phone for real-time discussions, updates, trivia, profiles on the cast and crew, and more. Monday night in America with Roger Noriega, 9.20, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently hosted on StreamYard. The Nightmare Hunter with Roger Noriega has moved to Tuesday evenings at 10 p.m. Also on stream. I don't know if it's Streamlabs or StreamYard. I'm not using it yet because I don't want to deal with the video. But it's one or the other of these. And I apologize because I've mixed them up and I don't know which one it is. Um, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time is Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the terrific trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of television. So please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We appreciate you, and we will see you next time. Good night and rock on. 